Well, thanks, Josh. Uh, today is, without a doubt, the most bivocational I've ever been. Um, I spent the afternoon editing and doing last-second rewrites on the biggest story that Texags has covered, what, since the Heisman, probably. Um, and then, in between, trying to finish my sermon and get my head into this space. I came up here and did my sound check and literally walked down and sat down in the front row and wrote a headline and texted it to somebody that works for me. So um, it's been that kind of day for me. But uh, this is Christ the King Sunday in the church calendar. It's the last Sunday of the church year. And we'll start the new year, the new church year with Advent next Sunday. And I wanted us to kind of bring to, to a little bit of closure, though I think it really just feeds into the Advent season and what we'll be doing beyond that really well, but to kind of put a little bit of punctuation on this season that we've been in talking about the mission of the church and joining God in his mission in the world. We've been working throughout this fall uh, through... The identity of the church. What does it mean for us to be the church? Who are we supposed to be? How are our lives supposed to, to, to function as the church? We talked about worship. We talked about mission. And, and we kind of are doing all that out of this just very simple phrase that the church exists to be people who are following Jesus in biblical community for the redemption of the world. I've been talking a lot about community in our comm groups as we work through the Larry Crabb book. Um, and we'll talk about some of that more in this space in the, in the weeks to come. But for the last several weeks, we've talked about the mission of the church. And that was capped the last two weeks by Jeff and then Brandon challenging us to identify and live God's mission in some particular parts of our daily lives, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our social spaces. And those were really, I don't know about you, but those are really helpful to me in starting to think in some specific ways. Um, but that, but doing that, believing and that we're part of God's mission, that it's supposed to affect those parts of our lives, um, calls us to put all of that stuff in our life on the table, to really sort of go palms up with the Lord and say, this is everything I have, what, what do you want to do with it? And to believe that he's already at work in all of those spaces, not that we're trying to figure out some puzzle, but that God is already at work in all of those spaces and, and ask him, what, what do I need to let go of? What needs to die? What needs to be resurrected? What needs to be rebuilt in my life to be with you in the way that you're at work in all those places? Um, and that means we, we have to understand that he's placed us specifically in those spaces to join him in that work. It's not an accident that we're there, that we're in, he, he's been intentional about making us part of his mission in that place. And for most of us, I think, if we're, if we're really going to stop and receive that and really think about that, it requires that we reimagine a lot about our lives. And so as I thought about how to, how to kind of punctuate this section and turn our attention toward Advent, ultimately I felt like that's the primary challenge that I want us as a people, as a community church, to walk away, away with from this season of focus on mission. This idea that God's mission demands that we imagine what it means for us as individuals and as a church to be faithful to God 
in our time and place. I think it's at the heart of who we are. I don't, I don't think this idea of mission is a secondary part of our faith. I think taking it seriously requires that we really rethink and reimagine and give God space to work and speak in understanding what it means for us to be faithful to God in the time and in the place uh, where we live. So what I want to do for a few minutes this evening is try to give us a broader vision for this task of understanding and imagining what it means for us to be faithful to God's mission in our time, in our place. Because we've talked through some of the details of that the last few weeks. And I think as we work this all out, I think a lot of the real work happens outside of Sunday teaching for sure and in the weeks and months to come as we work out everything uh, that we've talked about and, and begin to start looking at our lives and talking to one another about our lives and talking to the Lord about the details of our days in our weeks and our months and saying, what needs to change in these, in these details? Um, but I think for us to be faithful in those small details, we have to have some coherent understanding, first of all, of the world we're trying to reach, because that's where the mission happens. So we have to have some understanding of the world we're trying to reach, and we have to have a clearly established vision for what it means to be faithful, for me, for us to be faithful to God's mission in that world. So to do that tonight, I want to talk about uh, and acknowledge two difficult realities that I think are really important for us to identify and understand if we're going to be faithful to God's mission in this world. Two things that are true about the world we live in that we have to know and deal with. And then two challenges for us in holding to a vision of faith, to, to, in holding to faithfulness to God's vision. Ultimately, in all of that, I want us to have a picture of the church, a picture of us. When I say the church, I mean something bigger than us, but I, I absolutely mean us, the collective, who sit in this room on a weekly basis and sit in different rooms throughout the week. I want us to have a picture of the church as an active part of God's mission. I want to start uh, that, trying to, trying to give us a picture um, by taking a look at what the, the faithful presence of the church looked like in another time that I think is simpler, at least in our mind's eye, it's simpler. Um, and my hope is that by, by having, kind of getting a look at a simpler version of this, we can start to ask, okay, so, so how does that play out in our particular time and place? So I want you to imagine this scene with me. Um, I, I heard this a while back, this exercise a while back, and it was helpful to me, so I want to lead you through it. I want you to imagine, um, if you can't, if you need to close your eyes to imagine, I don't know what kind of imaginer you are, but whatever you need to do, I want you to get a picture in your head of a woman who is living several hundred years ago. We'll call her Hannah, just because that's a woman's name in the Bible, and uh, Let's say that she lives somewhere near the Mediterranean. If you don't, it's okay if you don't know that geography or that time period and you're trying to like get historically accurate or geographically accurate, just roll with whatever images your mind produces as I talk, okay? So we have this woman in another time and place a long time ago, a long way from here, where life is hard and it's not marked by convenience. 
and imagine that some difficult set of circumstances have forced Hannah to leave the home that she knows and travel into unfamiliar and inhospitable territory to try to find safety, to try to find a new home. She wraps herself up and she takes whatever she can carry. She leaves everything that's familiar to her and she steps out into the dark, into the elements. Maybe it's windy, maybe it's rainy, maybe she's walking through oppressive heat to get where she's going. She begins her journey with no companion, just by herself, with no one, nothing to protect herself with, with not nearly enough provision to eat or drink or to buy what she needs for the full length of her trip. As Hannah takes this lonely journey toward wherever it is that she has to go, she's almost certainly continually surveying the horizon for one thing. Do you know what she would be looking for? A church. People like Hannah, in her time and place, when they were in that circumstance, had their eyes out for churches. And some of these churches were the big sort of impressive cathedrals, some of which are still standing after literally hundreds of years in that part of the world. Sometimes the churches were small little buildings out on the edge of a village that had maybe a makeshift, what we would call a steeple, to mark their presence. Sometimes they were nondescript monasteries that just looked like homes, and you would only really know and identify from the outside that it was a church by sound. You might hear the monks singing or chanting from inside the walls. But all of the different kinds of churches shared a common vocation, a common mission, to be the faithful presence of God, the faithful presence of love in their time and in their place, and for people to know clearly that that's what they were. And that's why Hannah would look for a church, because of all the things she would know about the church, she would know that the church was a place and a people whose very purpose was to be a light in the darkness, to be a refuge for weary people like her, to be a presence in all of the absences of the world. In fact, a lot of these churches, um, you, can, you can open your eyes if you're still uh, imagining or if your imagining took you into dreaming, but a, a lot of these churches, depending on their history and their tradition, had codes. They actually had manuals for how to be that presence. It was, it was so built into their DNA of this is who we are that they had it written out that this, this is how we function as the presence for those who need us. How we receive wanderers, just like this woman Hannah that we imagined. Here's uh, an example of one of those, an excerpt from one of those manuals. This is from the, the Benedictine rule. And so those in churches that went by the Benedictine rule would have this that they read and knew. All guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ, for he himself will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Once a guest has been announced, the superior and the brothers are to meet him with all the courtesy of love. All humanity should be shown in addressing a guest on arrival or departure. The superior may break his fast for the sake of a guest. You can eat with them as you feed them. The abbot 
shall pour water on the hands of the guests, and the abbot with the entire community shall wash their feet. Great care and concern are to be shown in receiving poor people and pilgrims, because in them, more particularly, Christ is received. I just love this. I love the way that it's expressed, and I love that this was sort of the guidebook for being part of the church. It was part, uh, one of the primary understandings, if you were part of the church, was that you were to be ready to receive, to be a presence for those wandering in the world who came in in need, in need of a place, in need of a presence, in need of a, a place of love in the world around them. And this and, and other documents like it all bear witness to the reality that for a very long time the church has understood its purpose, its vocation to be becoming a presence in the absences of the world, in, in the spaces of the world where what we as humans innately need is missing. The church is to exist as a presence of those needs that God created to be met. And it may be difficult for us to imagine some of the kinds of absences that someone like Hannah in that day and age when things were a little simpler than they seem to us now, um, some of the absences that they experienced, uh, some were starving, and so they were driven by the absence of food. Some were afflicted by disease, and they were driven by the absence of care or medicine for their illness. Some were exploited and oppressed and were driven by the absence of any sort of justice or freedom for them. Some who had committed significant sin were driven out of their homes or what was familiar to them by the absence of grace because they just couldn't live in a space where they had done what they had done anymore. And can you see all of those people leaving, making their way on whatever journey they were on and looking for a church, looking for us because... The churches that they found were our people. We're descended from them. They're our family. And so they came looking for us, for God's people, for God's presence in the world. And when I look back at this and when I think about our ancestors in the church who welcomed and who loved those wanderers, the whole thing is really beautiful and inspiring to me. It seems very basic <laughs> and very simple. And it makes me go, oh, okay, we can do that. And then I, then I come back to the world in which we live, which is different. There seems to be in this a simplicity, both in the church and in the world, in this vision of the church. There seems to be a simplicity that's, I don't know if this language will make sense to you, but it's familiar enough for me to miss it. But it's also not quite how we live. And it doesn't seem like it's quite within my grasp. I also, uh, so I think it's all, it's, it's, it's helpful to me and it's beautiful to look back at that. It's also kind of painful because when I do start trying to bring that forward into to our time and place, it alerts us uh, to two realities that I think make this hard for us. Or that we have to deal with in trying to become that presence in the world. And the first of those two realities is both very simple. 
The first of those realities is that people are still wandering. As however well the church did throughout the centuries in being a place of refuge, it, di- it didn't put to an end once and for all the need of people. People are still wandering and in need. In some ways, people are still wandering just like they were in that time. There are millions of people in the world who are short of food, who don't have access to clean water, who don't have any sort of medicine or medical care, who are exploited and oppressed with no one coming to rescue them. There are, th- th- those realities still exist in much of the world. And we can't allow our American privilege, which is very real when set against the way much of the world lives, to dull our senses to, to their existence and their need. But there's also, for us, often in a more immediate way, another kind of wandering that people are doing. Um, and it's a lot more obvious in our time and place, and it matters just as much. We live in a time where there's a really unsettled sense of even the nature of reality, of what's real and what's not, and what it all means. Uh, It's evidence in lots of ways. It's blatantly uh, apparent in a constant argument that that, that never stops on the internet about what's fake news and real news. Okay, if you're ever worried that, that things are just too quiet, let me assure you that this fight is always happening on the internet. What's fake news and what's not fake news? We can't, we can't even come to a consensus about facts anymore. We can't determine who gets to decide what's true and what's not true. There's real confusion in our time about the essence of identity of who we are as people. There is an almost stifling anxiety about what life in our society is going to look like in the years ahead. And I know I'm middle age, and so uh, I'm a little more sensitive to these kinds of things, but I've never seen anything like it. I've never, and, and, and I just came from Thanksgiving uh, talking to multiple people who were twice my age or close to it, and they've never seen anything like it this sense of anxiety that just hangs over us about where we are and what life is going to be like in five years or 10 years or for our kids or our grandkids. The mission of the church, I wanna be clear about this, is forever aimed at that first kind of wanderer, at people with visceral human needs. There will never be a time as long as those needs of hunger and thirst and injustice and all of those things exist, there will never be a time that it's not the church's mission to be a place of hope for those people dealing with those things. But the time and place we live in isn't just about having to walk cross country without getting ambushed by bandits anymore. It's just not our reality. We live in an age where a lot of people are wandering in this abyss of disconnection and meaninglessness. Most of the people around us worry less about food and more about what their life means and whether it really matters in a time when all of these political and economic and technological powers give the appearance of being king and of controlling everything. We feel, I think, more out of control than than we ever have. 
And though few would say it this way, I think the lives of most people in our time, in our place, tell a story something like this. Money and financial security determine the order of my life. Technology powers my existence. Busyness is sovereign over my time, and I can't change it. It just is. Political trends significantly impact if they don't determine the ebb and the flow of my hope about the future. I think that's the story of the wanderers in our time and our place, right around us, at work, at school, in our community, in our neighborhoods. These are our wanderers, and the powers that they face are every bit as threatening and out of sync with the life that God made them to live, made us to live, as our poverty and injustice and all of those things. But there's a second painful reality um, about the time and place that we live in, and that's this. The wanderers aren't looking for us anymore. It was a little simpler sometime in the past. Wanderers in previous ages lived under this some sort of cultural assumption that even though not all of them would, would find themselves becoming Christian, the church was a good place to go to find help and to find some kind of meaning. Our wanderers, by and large, don't share that assumption anymore about the church. Whether you look at it through the lens of social science, of religious studies, of history, all of the scholarship on the state of Christianity in our part of the world is unanimous about the fact that the historic forms of Christianity, what we know as Christianity by and large, and the stature of the church in society are in decline. We're in a little bit of a bubble here in non-urban Texas where these trends and the crawl of this is a little slower than it is, but if, if you go spend any time in a major U.S. city or if you get out of the South, you will see this in a dramatically different way than, than we see it here, and yet it's here. It's happening here in our midst already. It's already a partial reality, and it will be a full reality for, our, for us soon. It will certainly be the reality that our kids live in. A society where Christianity as we know it and the influence of the church have declined in such a way that it's probably unrecognizable to our parents and grandparents. That's the world that, that our kids are going to grow up in. <clears throat> uh, and this last year, <laughs> I think, has certainly created a new era of uncertainty about how trustworthy the church is in society. Wherever you fall in political debates, it's undeniable that there is a new sense in the United States of America of distrust for the church as a reliable refuge for the world around us. And, and that's, that's a pretty dramatic phenomenon of the last year, but it's not an anomaly. It's where everything is, is headed culturally. For the foreseeable future, this is a settled fact. It may feel depressing to you for me to say that. It may feel like, oh, I guess there's nothing we can do. And we're going to come back to the mission of God in that space in a minute. But the mission of God is not to preserve the historic forms of Christianity. The mission of God is to preserve the mission of God and the gospel. 
And that can still happen. But it's important for us in, in living into that mission in the days to come to understand that the, the world we're living in doesn't embrace the church and Christianity like it once did. And that affects the way that we live. So what then? What does it look like to be faithful to God's mission in this time and place where the needs are as great as ever, the wanderers are still all around us, but they're not really looking for us. And let's be honest, if they were looking for us, they would have a hard time finding us because we don't own our own space. On the edge of town, in the center of town, big, small. In light of all of these realities, I think we have to ask, are we looking for them? If we believe God's heart is still for the wanderers, and if they aren't coming to us, are we going to them? Before I offer a couple of challenges to that end, to give us, I think, I hope, a vision for what it looks like for us to be people who say, yes, we're looking for them, and we have something to offer. I want to remind us, even dealing with these difficult realities, I want to remind us of some very good news that makes the whole rest of what I'm going to say possible and give it, gives it meaning. And that is this. God loves this world. Whatever state it's in, wherever it's headed, whatever's happening to its structures or its social trends or its religious uh, institutions, God loves this world as he's always loved this world. Loving the world is not our work. It's God's work. And he's inviting us into it. He made us to participate in his work, no matter how hard reality seems. And we've been through some of this over the last few weeks. But just to, just to remind us as we, as we kind of put a bow on this, John 3 tells us that God loves the world so much that he sent his only son and that Jesus came for the salvation of the world, not to condemn the world, but to rescue it. That's who God is. Not just on this moment when he sent Jesus and then he sort of washed his hands of the whole thing. That was him setting into motion his intention, which he will fulfill to rescue the world. That's who God is. And then when Jesus went back to the Father, he gave us, the church, his followers, a mission. With authority, he said, go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always. In this mission where I'm sending you out to all of the wanderers, no, no matter whether it's the 6th century or the 2,500 something, I'm with you in this mission. It's my mission. I'm with you in the mission. This is our charge, and he's with us. And Paul reminded us in 1 Corinthians 15, encouraging us to not be knocked over by the realities of the world, even the hard ones, to be firm, unshakable, always overflowing, always having that mission of God coming out of us. Because in the Lord, the work that we're doing, no matter how hard it is, is not in vain. It's his work, he's with us. He loves this world that he's sending us into. 
And that's crucial for us to remember. Because the mission that we're talking about, Jesus identifies really clearly. At some point, he, it, it, this mission is rooted um, in what he said at this point when, when he's asked, what's the most important instruction God's ever given? And Jesus says this, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your life, and with all your mind. This is the first commandment. It's the one that really matters. The second is similar, and it's this. You must love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law, everything God has commanded, hangs on these two commandments. And that goes for the prophets too. The truth-telling. God's commandments and all the telling of truth hangs on this charge. This is your mission. This is why you're alive. The first thing that these words tell us is our lives are first about loving God. So the first simple challenge, I think, for us moving forward in the mission of God and the mission of the church is if we're going to be effective and truly alive as God's people in our reality, we have to be rooted in actively loving God. I have to love the Lord with my heart, with my mind, and my life. This is why I was made. This is the only way I can be any good to the world around me is what Jesus says. He says, this is the most important instruction that God has given you. Love God fully with all that you are. It's not just about generating or sustaining a feeling or an affection. It's about devotion. This idea of loving God with our whole being. It's not just a belief or an intention. It's a discipline to be with him to know him and to value him above everything. And this doesn't happen by drift. And if you've been in the faith for any length of time, you know this intuitively, and yet we slip back into forgetting it. We don't stumble into this kind of life. We don't stumble into growing deeper in our love for God with our hearts, with our minds, with our whole being. It's a matter of intention and of direction. We point our lives toward God and then we build our deta the details of our lives to keep us on that course. And that's, that's why, if I can just take an aside on this for a moment, that's why we do this. It's why we gather here together on Sundays to worship and to be taught and to be directed together. It's to keep us in, a, in the same way together, rooted in a love for God. And, and to do it in a way that just doesn't happen in the course of our, the routines of our days and our lives unless we stop and make a point of joining together to do it. This is the ultimate preaching to the choir, right? Talking to the people who are here for worship on Sunday about why you should be here for worship on Sunday. But I think it's important for us to remember the purpose of it. And it's not just because it's what we do. And it's also not just for the people who like these kinds of gatherings. Some people love this. Some people can't wait to get in a room together with a whole bunch of people. <laughs> I'm not one of those people that can't wait to get in a room together with a whole bunch of people. Now, this has changed in my heart out of devotion. I do look forward to this time in this space every week. But that had to grow in me. 
this thing is not just for the people who are naturally drawn to this kind of gathering, who easily connect to this kind of thing. It might be more for those of us who don't easily connect to this kind of thing. Those of us introverts like me or for whatever other reason who str- you might struggle to look forward to being in a room full of people singing very intimate and demanding words. That's a weird thing to do, man. For a lot of people, it is. And this thing might be for you, especially if that's hard to do. It's why we invest time in coming together as the church to say who God is, to remind each other who God is, and to be taught together in the same direction. It's why we invest time on our own, outside of this space, in growing deeper in our love for and devotion to God, why we invest time in the scriptures and in prayer and in a communal life that isn't just social, but it's vibrant with the Spirit and with the Spirit's work between us. And this is a depth that we're trying to grow into in ways that, that maybe we've slipped in some areas right now. A communal life that isn't just about we like to be together, but is about the Spirit at work among us to draw us deeper into this love for God and love for people. Loving the Lord with all my heart and all my mind, all my life means I'm not, I'm doing something more than just discovering who I really am and what makes me happiest. It means I'm taking who I am. And it's important to understand ourselves and to learn about ourselves to know how to do this. So I'm not minimizing that, but it means that I take that understanding about myself and I give it to the Lord and I find new life in him. And that requires intentionality even and especially when I'm just not feeling it. And that's the biggest misconception and I think it's one of the biggest roadblocks to us growing deeper into our love for the Lord and and then ultimately one of the biggest roadblocks for us growing deeper into why we even exist is that sometimes we're just not feeling it. And my inclination when I'm just not feeling that love is to just go do something else to give my attention and my time and my affection to something easy that I am feeling or that I don't have to feel about at all. (laughs) But we're made for something. And this is the primary part of what we're made for, Jesus says, to love the Lord deeply. And that requires devotion and discipline. It requires setting our lives on that course and sticking to it. That kind of love for God and life with God is essential for us to be a faithful presence to love people as we love ourselves. And that's the second challenge. It's very, very simple, like the first, but also difficult. The second challenge is that I'm here to love other people the way that I love myself. This means that in my efforts, in our efforts, to nurture our spiritual health as individuals and as a church together, we can't turn so far inward that we've prioritized our own security, our own safety, and our own prosperity over the mission of God to the world around us. This happened. This has happened before. It's happened lots of times before. But it's clearly recorded in the scriptures centuries ago. In Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 58, speaks to and about a people that got in this place. 
they began to prioritize their own security, their own safety, and their own prosperity over the mission of God to the world. It's important. I think this is really important because we tend to hear that kind of description. We've got a people that are prioritizing their own interests over what God cares about, and it's easy to just kind of push them off as sort of pagan or disinterested in God and what he's doing in the world, but that's not the description we get in Isaiah 58. What we get is a picture of a people who are truly eager to know God and to hear from God and who can't figure out why he doesn't seem to respond to them. When they're asking, God move, God do the things you do in the world. And they're saying, why, why when we ask don't you answer? Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways. This is how the prophet speaking for God describes them as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? This is what the people say. We want God, we want you to move. We're asking, we're fasting, and you're not paying any attention to us. And the prophet says back to them on God's behalf, look, You serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not not to hide yourself from your own kin. We can't hide ourselves from a world that is in need. We can't hide ourselves and say, well, they're not really looking for us. We can't hide ourselves because sometimes they're not gonna receive those of us who are conspicuously on God's mission. They're not going to receive us with open arms. We can't withhold ourselves and stay back and take, pay attention only to what we need, the scriptures say. The unfriendliness of the world to our faith and to our beliefs is real. It's something to acknowledge, as I talked about. It's something to grieve, maybe, for you that the world doesn't embrace the church and Christianity like we would like it to but we can't let it, it force us to turn inward and practice our faith, our faith only in safe spaces and in easy ways. We can't. So maybe the heart of this challenge to love others like we love ourselves, maybe a more nuanced challenge for us in our time and space in this room today is this. The world is hard for everybody, not just us. And it's important to remember that when we're in this place where we're frustrated that the world is so hard on Christians. The world is hard on everybody. Nobody has it easy out there. Pay attention. It's a hard world to live in right now. The world is hard on everybody. And either we're going to live like the people who have real light and real hope in the midst of that hard reality or we aren't. If we are, we can't withdraw and we can't constantly complain about how hard it is. 
We can't use our particular hardships, though they might limit us at times, and they might cause us to to have seasons of rest and recovery or even lament and brokenness. But we can't use our particular hardships as an excuse to not be engaged with God and with the world, to just stay back. We can't decide we've been given the one combination of circumstances that, that prevents God from being able to include us in his mission in the world. It sounds silly when you hear it spoken that way, but that's what we're doing a lot of the time. We're just talking about, I just, I'm stuck. It's what I'm doing a lot of the time, how hard life is, and I just can't. And somewhere, at some point, the reality that God can overcome all of that and intends to overcome all of that for me to be part of his mission in the world has to come into play. He didn't make me to be stuck forever. The bottom line is that we can't love ourselves more than we love others and still follow a God, still follow Jesus who gave himself away for the sake of others. We exist to love a God who loved the world so much that he gave his son to save it. We exist to truly follow him into that way of being and that way of living. And that brings us all the way back to that most important point in all of this that God is alive in the world and he loves it. He is in here. God is alive in here in my soul, in your soul. He is alive in here in this group of people, but he's out there. And so we don't go out there alone. We don't even go out there with his help to accomplish our mission. We go out there to join him in the work that he came to do in the first place with or without us. And that work is saving the world from sin and suffering and death and injustice and starvation and loneliness and confusion about identity and meaning and doing all of that through the building of his kingdom where God's will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I mentioned at the start, next Sunday um, we'll begin the season of Advent. And today is, is uh, Christ the King Sunday or the Feast of Christ the King in the church tradition. So it's an appropriate day for this charge to invite our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, our community, and our world to the feast of Christ the King. I said before that, that my observation Um, is that the lives of a lot of people in our time and place tell this story. I I wrote it out here to read it again. A lot of the wanders around us, and maybe this might get a little personal for some of us, if we're honest, tell this story with our lives. Money and financial security determine the order of my life. Technology powers my existence. Busyness is sovereign over my time and I can't change it. Political trends significantly impact, if not determine, the ebb and flow of my hope. These, I think, are our wanderers, but we have good news for them. Jesus is king and he will break the power of all of these false gods, all of the powers that steal and kill and destroy the life that we were made to live. The prophetic declaration 
in Isaiah, in the, in the chapter that we've already read from, is that when God's people reject self-interest and go to the wanderers with the good news of the king, this is what happens. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fall, fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. Your, you shall rise up, the, raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to live in. May it be so in us and through us and in our worlds.